welcome to the Rise Rooted Podcast. If you're a mom who feels like you've lost yourself along the way, you have landed in the right spot. I'm your host, Katherine Middlebrooks, founder of BRB Yoga and postpartum health expert who has helped thousands of moms rebuild their bodies after baby. Each week, join me and my guests as we explore ways to create health in mind and body so that you can live a life you love. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Today, I am sharing a conversation with my friend and the founder of Brilliantly, Kristen Carbone. Kristen and I have been friends since college. When Kristen was in her early 20s, her mother died after fighting a long battle with breast cancer. And then Kristen, in her 30s, decided to have a preventative double mastectomy to reduce her risk of following the same fate as her mom. And as her friend, I have been privy to all the ups and downs of that journey. And I wanted Kristen to come share about what she has learned about being her own advocate for her health and within the health system. I strongly believe that each of us does need to step into a leadership role for our own health. The reality is we are the people who know the most about our own bodies. We also are the ones who have intuition that can tell us when something isn't right or a doctor isn't listening, right? And because of my role as a teacher to postpartum women who are dealing with physical issues, I can't tell you how many emails I get in my inbox that really are emails that are designed to go to a doctor. But the reality is women either don't trust their doctors to ask that information, or they don't know what doctor to go to. And all of that confirms to me how important it is to one, be your own advocate, do your own research, and two, work really hard to get a medical team that you do trust for when you have serious medical things going on. So we talk about all of that in this episode, and I hope that you find it really helpful. Let me share a little bit about Kristen. Kristen Carbone is committed to making the lives of the people around her more comfortable, fulfilling, and beautiful. After a decade-long career working in curatorial departments in museums across New York and New England, she founded Brilliantly, a brand dedicated to meeting the long-term quality-of-life issues faced by women who've had an experience with breast cancer. She currently resides in Providence, Rhode Island, where she lives with her two children. Now, before I dive into the conversation, I do want to say that Kristen and I have collaborated to create a completely free corrective exercise program designed to help women who have had some sort of surgery related to breast cancer. It's called Brilliantly Strong. I will link to it in the show notes, and we talk a little bit more about it at the end of this episode. It is designed to give you simple five-minute-a-day exercises that help increase your strength and mobility and range of movement. Let's dive in. Hi, Kristen. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Full disclosure, in addition to all those amazing things that I just read on, about Kristen on her bio, she is also literally my best friend since college. So this is going to be fun and we're going to try to keep ourselves from like 
completely losing it in giggles, but we'll do our best. Today, there's a lot of stuff that I want to talk to you about, Kristen, but mainly I think it's going to focus around navigating health challenges and being your own advocate for your health. And, you know, your story really relates to breast cancer, preventative mastectomy surgery, but for so many moms, you know, there's all sorts of health issues that moms are facing, whether that's chronic disease, surgery, cancer, right? And this information is really going to apply to all of those topics. So before we dive in, will you just briefly tell us a little bit about your mom and your health scare, particularly you know, your what resulted in your decision to have that preventative mastectomy? Yeah, of course. And I'm so happy to be talking about this. I think it is agnostic of um, illness or condition or medical issue. Really being able to say what you want and ask questions is such an important thing to learn how to do. It's definitely a skill and something you have to work at. Uh, So for me, uh, my mom, as you know, died at 49 from metastatic breast cancer. That was back in 2005. And I was just thinking the other day that you were the person that I called. Um, I had an appointment with a new OBGYN um, in the last couple months of my mom's life. And she was the first person who recommended a preventative mastectomy. And I thought she was out of her mind. I think that I called you before I even got on the elevator to leave the building, just like enraged. Like this bitch is crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Like it was a completely insane thing for her to even suggest I think about like, Hey, you're trying to help care for your mother as she's dying, but you should think about amputating your healthy body. Um, and I think I continued to think that that was crazy for a lot of years. I started seeing a preventative oncologist after my first child, my son was born in 08 and back in the early two thousands, the only two genetic mutations they knew about were BRCA1 and BRCA2. Those are, of course, the ones that most people still know about, but there's many, many other mutations and hereditary risk factors. Um, I tested negative in 08 for BRCA1 and 2 and actually need to have more genetic testing now because they know so much more. And because of my family history, I ended up following the same recommended screening that someone would follow if they had tested positive for BRCA. So I was having an MRI, an ultrasound, and a mammogram every year. And of course, insurance wasn't covering that because I fell outside of the bell curve of recommendations. And my preventative oncologist very gently suggested the possibility of a preventative mastectomy. And for years, I was just like, you know, that's not for me. And then she recommended a book called Pretty is What Changes, which was the only book available at the time about that decision. I read the book and the author, Jessica Queller, said that she had really been advised to make that decision by the time she turned 30. And lo and behold, three months after I turned 30, I had an ultrasound and they found a lump in the exact same spot as my mom's primary cancer. And I had a biopsy. It ended up being benign. Um, But the whole experience for me really put my health into perspective. And my mom's cancer was caught really early, as was her aunt's. They both ended up dying from breast cancer. And I thought, I've had two kids. Um, I really don't want them to see me go through what I watched my mother go through. 
and let's just move forward with the preventative mastectomy. So that was 2013. So it's almost been seven years. Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah. You know, it's interesting to just also thinking about the shift in life circumstances as well, because it makes a ton of sense, right? When you were first given that information, you hadn't had kids yet. You, you know, and I know for you, you wanted to be able to breastfeed them. And so it was important to you also to kind of have some of these life experiences happen before you made that drastic decision, right? Yeah. And I think for anyone who's healthy, when you're 23, you don't think about your own mortality. Like, you know, my mom was dying, but it wasn't like I felt like I was personally at risk, especially then. I think becoming a parent changed my perspective about mortality and reason to be alive and the necessity of my health and well-being as a parent. Um, but at 23, I was like, what? Right. You can't even conceive of like the risk at that point. What is your risk? Yeah. And just fun fact for everyone listening, this is actually such a bizarre thing, but my father died two years to the day before your mother died, like not of cancer or anything like that. He had a liver failure. But I just think that's always such an interesting thing that connect, connects us. And I remember so vividly being in the hospital with my dad as he was dying. And I don't remember like talking to my mom. I don't remember anything. All I remember is you calling me over and over and over again, like in this way that was so supportive and so exactly what I needed. And then when your mom two years later was dying, I was in like grad school and I called you and I was like, would it help if I was there? And you were like, yes. And I like just left and went there. And and I just think, um, you know, I'm just so grateful for that, like friendship and the support that we were able to give each other for these insane, awful moments that were happening so they like co-occurred in such an odd way, you know? Yeah. I um, am working on a book and I actually just wrote about you being there and how it was probably, you know, my mastectomy, it was much more <clears throat> acute and apparent to me uh, that I had to ask for help, but that you were one of those people that I felt like I could ask for help in that moment with my mom. And when you're young again and you feel immortal, you also, or at least I felt like, as a young woman, I needed to be able to do everything for myself and that it was, I wouldn't have said like, I need help, but you were like, would it help if (laughs) exactly? And I could say yes. (laughs) Totally. And I think that that's so, that is such an important lesson because people are, their first reaction is always going to be like, no, I'm good. I don't, I don't need help. Like you have to frame it in a way that is like, no, really, I am so willing to do this. Yeah. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit and kind of frame the conversation around fear because I think a lot of the messages that we get in our culture are like, have no fear, get rid of the fear, all of this stuff and this like really unrealistic expectation that we're going to be living without fear. But for you, fear was a real potent motivator for you to make this decision. And I'm just curious kind of how you see the role of fear in your life and how that has shifted over the years. That's an interesting way to frame it. And I think there's, for me, there's two kinds of fear. Like I jokingly say the only thing I'm afraid of is sharks. And I'm like really afraid of sharks. Like I can be afraid of a shark attack in a swimming pool at night in suburbia. Like it's completely irrational. But then there's another kind of fear that's a known fear, right? Like I 
knew what it looked like to die from metastatic breast cancer. I knew what it looked like to have your family be falling apart as that was happening. You know, it, it was a fear that I completely understood and could identify with and knew I didn't want to repeat. So for me, it, it felt like, um, a rational decision and not one that was based on a fearful emotion. Um, Unlike not wanting to jump into a pool at night. (laughs) (laughs) Totally rational. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, totally. But I think I, not having a BRCA mutation at that time, it made me feel like I was being a little bit crazy and acting like I was afraid. But the preventative oncologist that I saw at NYU had published a paper the same year my mom died about early onset breast cancer. And there were all of these seemingly unrelated traits that they found in their test group, like birth weight over 10 pounds and early first period and things that you wouldn't think were necessarily related to breast cancer, but they had found commonalities in their test group. And I had all of those things. So when I first started going to her, even before I'd had genetic testing, I was like, okay, this paper is me. Um, And with known information, it feels like facing a fear is much more reasonable and attainable. Um, But of course that fear is never gone. Like I have a lump in my armpit right now. And I, you know, there's, I think for anyone who has either um, had a cancer diagnosis or some other chronic illness or, um, really intense medical intervention or been the caregiver for someone who's had that, it's hard to think it's not going to happen to you. Um, I come from an area of New York state where there's a huge amount of cancer. And I remember, um, the year that I met you that fall, um, someone every two weeks I knew either got cancer or died from cancer. And you were like, I don't even know anyone with cancer. Yeah. Um, so for me, because of where I grew up and because of my family's health history, there were so many factors in addition to the fear of what it would mean to get it. Cause there's like fear of death. Right. But there's, for me, it's less about my death than leaving my kids, mm-hmm. which was a huge, I think I probably maybe wouldn't have done this, the surgery if I didn't have children but I feel so compelled to be alive and healthy and be there for them because I was 23 when my mom died and it was one of the most difficult things. Watching someone die is horrific. And then going through all of your life milestones without that person is also so, it's just a constant reminder of this loss, you know, and you know what this is like, like getting married and having children and not having what you imagine it should be. And I just didn't want that to be what my children's experience was too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's almost, it's less that it was like about your own fear of getting sick, but really more what you wanted for your children. Yeah. And I think, (laughs) and my dad and I, because we were like on the front lines as caregivers, depending, if I ever did get cancer, depending on my prognosis, I might not even treat it. Um, the treatment, the current treatment options are sometimes so inhumane that I would almost rather have a shorter life with a higher quality of life than a longer life, um, in treatment. Um, and I think that is a scary thing to think about, but it isn't, it wasn't as much afraid of me getting cancer myself. It was afraid of what that meant for 
the people in my life. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's really helpful because I think that there's so many ways we can relate to fear. And so really discussing the different ways in which we're processing things that do feel scary to us is really helpful. Um, So now I want to shift to talking about being your own best advocate. Was there a moment for you when you realized that you were going to have to be the one to serve this role? Or kind of did you already know that already from your experience with your mom? Or was it something that you gradually moved into? I, I allowed myself to be steamrolled a number of times before I realized I was going to have to really just demand the kind of care that I wanted and not worry about what people thought, which is a huge issue that I have. Like, I want people to like me. Um, It's a personality disorder, actually. Don't we? Yeah, (laughs) no, but I think that there are some people who understand when it doesn't matter if, if the person likes you. And I went to the Cancer Institute in Buffalo, New York, where I was living with my mom when my mom's cancer returned for the second time and said, you know, her oncologist at Johns Hopkins thinks I should start doing mammograms. And the radiologist, the tech was like, I'm not giving you one. Like you're too young. We're going to expose you to the, you know, like, and just was like, you're, you're too young to worry about this, like go home. And I was like, okay. Um, and did. And then was like, well, you know, she told me I didn't have to worry about it. So it was almost like I was looking for permission to not have to worry at that point. Um, and, you know, I've had a number of medical experiences since then. And going through it with my mom, I realized first that it you shouldn't go alone, right? It's easier for you to be in an appointment with me and notice that maybe I'm confused or not paying attention or getting emotional. And you can say, wait a second and ask a question again or take notes for me. But it's a really difficult thing to do alone. Mm -hmm. And I would say, um, if it's a pregnancy related issue, having your partner with you, if it's a different health issue, like you can bring your, a parent or a friend, or if you have an adult child, like it almost doesn't matter who it is, as long as it's somebody who can take notes and who can stay calm because there isn't anything worse than you bringing somebody who gets more upset. Um, <laughs> yeah, and no. I did that. I, I brought my dad to my first appointment at NYU. And I thought, you know, he took the train to New York from um, Baltimore. And I took the train from Albany. And we met there. And we went to the appointment. And we were in the waiting room. And he was like, I'm not going in with you. And I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. And, you know, I don't think that I understood until now how difficult that situation was for him to have me be in a similar position and for him to be waiting in a waiting room. Um, since my mom died, I've always been the person who's the patient until recently when my daughter Sylvia had to have, um, it's an endoscopy, right? Where they scope you to look at your, um, your upper GI. She had to have that done. And everything was fine. She drove her little car into the ER, like in her little kid's scrubs. And we lay her down and they put her out. And I go to the waiting room and I walked into the waiting room and I real I just burst into tears. I hadn't been in a waiting room since my mom was in surgery and I was sitting there waiting for her. And as a parent, it is a completely different experience. Um, so make sure you ask the right person. My dad was the wrong person <laughs> to ask to be there in that way for a number of reasons, including that he has like a really strict sense of propriety. 
um, and privacy. And he would like, nothing would make him more uncomfortable than watching me get a breast exam. Well, and he had also just been through his own trauma as well of your mom dying. Right. And so it's very personal for him. But I think that that's a really great point of it's almost like having a mirror there for you because you're so you can't help but be emotional when it's your own health issues being discussed. But to have someone that could actually be like, hey, <laughs> that nurse wasn't paying attention to what you actually wanted at all. Like, you know, because you can totally lose sight of that in the midst of those conversations. And I think, you know, that's when I realized like, okay, I should have somebody come with me who's not in my family. Like my family is too raw for this. And so that's, you know, our other friends from college and people who lived in New York and, and cousins and aunts and people who were like a little bit removed from our nuclear family trauma who could help. And, and, and that continued even in the taking care of me after surgery, like, not putting someone in the position to be my caregiver who it was going to be really emotional and triggering for. Mm -hmm. In terms of being your own advocate, I know for you, it's not a role that like, oh, I did this, I got the surgery, and now I get to step out of that role. You know, you've continued to have to advocate. You've had multiple surgeries afterwards. You have continued, you continue to have screenings and was it something that you expected? Like, were you thinking, oh, I'm going to, I can, I can get myself through to this surgery. And then it's like, oh, I'm going to be free and clear. Oh yeah. I totally had that expectation that I thought, okay, I'm going to make this choice and then I don't have to deal with this. And it is like anything else, never ending. Um, and I think that for most medical experiences that are a choice. So I guess a preventative mastectomy is a choice and having a child is a choice. There are long-term consequences for your physical body and your emotional well-being that get masked or shrouded in this idea that you have to feel blessed. Like you should be so lucky that you have a child and this is what you wanted, or you got to choose to have this surgery. And then you get stripped of permission to say, well, actually my one implant drifted to basically under my armpit and I want you to fix it. And it's like really hard to say, I'm not happy with this choice that I made or yes, I have a healthy baby and I had natural delivery, but like, you know, I'm having all kinds of incontinence issues <laughs> or whatever it is. There, there oftentimes when you're in a medical situation, it's really difficult. And it has, as you said, continued to be a part of my life in a way that I genuinely didn't expect and I've had a number of, I injured myself and had to have another reconstructive surgery because I didn't know that I should have asked to go to physical therapy. And there's so many ways. And, and I think every year I learn about a new way that my body is either aging or <laughs> whatever it is. Maybe it's a natural process, maybe not, but ways that I have to figure out how to support my, my physical health and ask for that. And if a doctor doesn't listen to me, go to another doctor. I mentioned I have a lump in my armpit and I went to my plastic surgeon, another plastic surgeon, a breast oncologist, my general practitioner. Like until somebody can really help you figure out an answer, you have to keep going and that's exhausting. And it's a job and it's expensive. Our system is not set up to have you find an answer to a problem. It's set up to um, put a Band-Aid on a symptom. Absolutely. No, I think that that is so true. And I think there is something about surgery in particular. I, you know, I'm thinking about all the women that I work with who have hernia surgery too, where it's like, 
they just there is it's almost like they're sold the idea that surgery is the an end point and you know like for you it's not oh now this i have the surgery and it's done and it's not for women who are having that surgery either because it's like the hernia was created by some underlying issue in your body and if you don't address that correct that make the lifestyle change that then supports that surgery um healing in the best way and and continuing to serve you you're just gonna create injury again Right. And I think the healing process is really overlooked and we don't talk about it enough from like any kind of surgery to, um, postpart, like any kind of major change that happens to your body, there is an adjustment period. And we rarely talk about that. And the doctor's like, we'll see you in six weeks. And like, yeah, your incision looks like it's healing well. It's like, cool. <laughs> Go do everything you did before. I know. Don't even get me started on that one. That one can get me going forever. But I think also, especially for women who are dealing with anything related to cancer, that's why what you, the work that you are doing is so valuable because you are creating through Brilliantly this resource that really allows women to have help with the financial resources to be informed about the things that they need to ask their doctors, the things that they can expect after surgery. It's those types of resources that weren't available for you when you were going through all of this that really can help women feel more empowered to be their own advocate. Yeah. And I think being really good at research is a skill too, right? And there's so much information out there around breast cancer around a lot of issues from so many people from doctors to just people who are bloggers. And it's like, where is the curated vetted resource guide? Where do you go to find that stuff out? And that's what I, I really felt like was missing. You know, when my mom was sick, it was always struggling to find where do we find the products that we need to help keep her comfortable and well and then for me, it was like, where do I find, what are the questions that I'm supposed to ask and what is, what's normal after surgery and what's not normal and what's a problem and what, what do I talk to my doctor, physical therapist, oncologist, like who are even the people that you ask these questions? Um, we hosted an event last summer about sexual wellness and we had a nurse, a nurse practitioner from Sloan Kettering. And my first question was, okay, so there's like all of these different types of sexual dysfunction. And if you're a woman who's experiencing that, where do you even start? Do you talk to your oncologist? Do you talk to a physical therapist? Do you talk to your OBGYN? Do you talk to a sex therapist? Like, where do you start? And I think that's the question that I felt like was completely missing from my experience and the one that I'm trying to help create for women going forward. Yeah, I love that. I know in my e in email inbox, the questions that I get, I get so many questions directed to me as if I were a doctor, which I think is so interesting. But it's just so illustrative to me of the fact that people literally don't know where to go to find good information about their bodies which is part of why we're doing this podcast as well. That is all really useful information about being your own advocate. But I also know that you have done a really good job of creating a health team around you that you do trust and that you know is working in your best interest um, and that you are a, in partnership 
with, right? Rather than them kind of being like, this is what you need to do. There does really seem like you have a partnership with them. Do you have any advice for women who are trying to seek out the right people? Like, how do you even begin? What mattered most to you? How do you do that? Yeah, I think um, I feel incredibly privileged to live in the geographic area where I do. I'm in Providence. I'm situated between New York and Boston. There's so many options available to me. And the preventative oncologist at NYU was recommended to me by a friend who I trust deeply. So I don't know that I would have started this journey without her saying, like, this is the business card of a woman that you need to see. And my first appointment with Julia Smith, she walked in the room and I knew immediately it was like professional love at first sight. I was like, this woman is on my team. And I've had the complete opposite experience too. And I think a lot of us feel like, well, they're a doctor and doctors train. I mean, I have a lot of wonderful friends who are doctors and they train so hard and they spend so much time and they genuinely have a calling and not, and this is not to belittle the people who are medical professionals, but they're human, right? They're people and you have to find your people. It's just like finding your friends or finding your partner. You have to find somebody that you click with. And so if you go into an, into an appointment, regardless of what health experience it's about, if you feel uncomfortable, find someone else. If you don't feel like they're listening to you, you don't have to be like, well, you know what? They're the doctor and they know best, which is, I think, especially for like our parents and our grandparents, what the pervasive thinking was. Well, that's what the doctor said. And Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, well, we are educated consumers of healthcare. We can read on the internet or read medical journals or, you know, we're coming at it from a completely different level of education. But I'm saying that as somebody who has gone to college who lives in the Northeast, who can take the time because I have the family support to go to multiple doctors. It is not an easy thing to do. Anybody who asked me, I'd be like, keep going until you find the person who's your person. But if you live in a rural part of the country, you might not have that option, which is why I think the virtual services and probably why you get so many questions as if you are a doctor, because there are people who don't have access the way we have access to a variety of healthcare professionals. Yeah. Yeah. The whole notion of privilege is one that is just so embedded in all of these conversations as well in terms of money and access and and all of that. But I do think if you have the means and the ability, even though it's going to be a huge hassle to transfer your health records, and even though it's going to be a huge hassle to do the research to find someone else, when you get that gut feeling of this person is not listening, this person is not hearing me, that is a huge sign to move on, I think, regardless of the health issue you're dealing with. Yeah. And I think that that's where I feel like social media is such a useful tool. There is a Facebook group for everything. And you can crowdsource like, hey, I am a 30-something-year-old woman living in Providence. I just left my dermatologist appointment and she was absolutely awful. Does anyone have someone to recommend? I think we trust each other. Mm -hmm. And even if it's a stranger on the internet who's like, I went to this person and they were wonderful and they listened to me and they fit me in because I was having this emergency, you're going to be like, okay, I might try that. In a way, we still do have some access because of the internet. Mm -hmm. And you know, I have spent a lot of time finding my team of people 
Um, cause I've been told things like, <laughs> and you know, this, I have um, a very minor heart issue that sometimes causes me weird pain. And I went to see a cardiologist who literally said, your pain is meaningless. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh my God. I forgot about straight that. <laughs> and it's like, maybe it is, right? but that's not the way that you tell me that. Like I'm having a cardiac issue. <laughs> right. Yes. This, this organ that keeps my body running, it is pain. Uh, can we address it as if it actually does matter to me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and you and I, I know we've talked about this because our sons have had different health issues within their reproductive areas and the way that how fast they get attention and how um, people rally around men's health in a very different way. Like if I went and if like people will literally say to me, your pain is meaningless. Or if I said I had vaginal pain, somebody would be like, sorry, you know, it's a very different conversation when you're a woman and you have a pain issue or a health issue, how you get treated than if, you know, if I had been a man with a cardiac issue, they probably would have sent me directly to the emergency room. Oh yeah. That's so true. Like the woman that I work with who she had pain with intercourse and her doctor just said, you need to drink more water before you do it. It's like, come on, people. (laughs) We all need to drink more water. (laughs) Okay, so I I know we're running out of time, but I wanted to just ask one last question because for me, watching my dad die when I was 22, it was a very pivotal moment in my life. It literally changed, like I remember the time before and the time after and just like priorities shifted on a dime, right? And I know that for you, the process of caring for your mom and losing her so early in your life has shaped your life in so many ways. And so I'm just curious what the biggest lesson that you took away from that experience is and and what it is that it continues to shape in your life now. In a way that I couldn't articulate until really recently, it made me realize how fragile a nuclear unit is when there's so few people in it. And I have now found a way to outsource my needs to a huge community of people. I feel so loved and supported all of the time. And there are so many women who have stepped in as mom-ish figures to me. And I've created um, a childhood for my kids where they know and love so many other adults. Um, And I think it is non-traditional and maybe there will be some weird outcome (laughs) later, but I think I'm trying to build a life for them where if I don't have a long life, that they have all of these other adults who they know and love and trust who are going to be there for them in a way if I couldn't be. So for me, it's like filling that void that my mom would have filled as one person, which is huge. You know, we have these expectations of our parents that are hard to kick, even if they weren't really wonderful and available, that cause lifelong (laughs) issues for so many of us. And I think that's the biggest thing for me is building my support network. So I feel like something's missing, but in a, in a less devastating way. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I I will say as your friend, you are uniquely skilled at that. Like it is your superpower to bring people around you and create community around you And I know from knowing your mom that you got that from her, too, because she was so skilled at doing that. So 
for me, the introvert that is your best friend, I'm always really grateful that you're so good at that too, because my tendency is to be like in my little bubble and being friends with you. I get exposed to your amazing community of awesome people and friends and your kids and all that good stuff too. So thanks. Thank you. (laughs) So before we go, I want to talk about what you offer at Brilliantly. We should talk about Brilliantly Strong too. Um, So let people know first where they can find you and what you offer at Brilliantly. And then we can talk a little bit about Brilliantly Strong too. Sure. So the platform I built is called Brilliantly. As Catherine said, we're on the web at brilliantly.co. And that's also our Instagram handle and where you can find us on Facebook. And that's .co, not .com. Um, We are, as we talked about a little bit, trying to create a curated, vetted resource guide for all kinds of things. Right now, that's available on our blog as just posts and content. But we are working behind the scenes to create either a database. The, The form that it's going to take is amorphous right now and unknown, but we are doing so much research on the um, resources and things that are available to women who've had an experience with breast cancer or preventative mastectomy. One of the things that uh, Catherine, you and I collaborated on is an initiative called Brilliantly Strong. As someone who did not even have physical therapy recommended to them and then injured themselves and then talked to so many women who couldn't go either because of access, like we talked about, it could be insurance or time or childcare or whatever it is, um, helping women feel strong and whole again through a corrective exercise program. We collaborated on that and it is the first phase of it is on our website and is free. Um, we'll, if you send us your email, we'll give you a password protected link so you can do those and they're daily five to 10 minute corrective exercises, which is what it, Catherine is so amazing at. And then, um, the product that we're making is called Brilliantly Warm. And one of the things I was most unprepared for as a long-term kind of quality of life issue, having a preventative mastectomy with reconstruction was how cold I feel all the time. So the removal of breast tissue and the addition of implants, they just act like a heat sink. So they're not only cold to the touch, but they're also constantly pulling heat from my core and I'm cold all the time. And so we have been working for about two and a half years on creating this warming wearable that's controlled by an app and fits into any bra or even a tank top that's got, that's really fitted or has a shelf bra in it. And that's for women who suffer from this chronic coldness as a side effect of implant reconstruction. Yes, which I love. And we didn't even really touch on that, but that was one thing despite all the research, despite all of the, the pre-work that you did, it was like not something you wasn't even on your radar before you did this, which is just crazy considering how much it does really impact the quality of life that you have after surgery. So yes, go check Kristen out. She's doing amazing things. And just like in her life, in her business, she is bringing such amazing people together to support the women in her community. So you're doing awesome stuff and I love you. No, I love you too. Thanks for being part of it. Thanks for coming on the show and yeah, check out Brilliantly Strong. It's so fun. We, um, just, even though it looks very polished in the videos, we were cracking up a ton while we were recording that stuff too. I can't wait to We're do working on bloopers actually. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I can't wait. Share them with you. I love it. Thanks for being here, Kristen. We appreciate you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Rise Rooted. You can find all the links mentioned in today's show at our website, brbyoga.com, as in be right back. And if you're looking for support to heal your post-baby body, 
please head to our website. There you'll find our courses for core, pelvic floor, and hip health, as well as free masterclasses and blog posts designed to teach you how to feel your best in your post-baby body. And yes, that even applies to you if you had your baby 30 years ago. If you enjoyed today's show, please consider subscribing and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or posting a screenshot of today's episode to Instagram. Doing so makes my day and helps other moms find the show. Thanks so much for being here. Till next time.